Hello everyone, it's January 31st, 2023. This week we're taking a look at rotating detonation rocket engines. It's as cool as it sounds and might one day lead to a big step forward in the incremental world of improving chemical rocket engine efficiency. That doesn't happen every day. So today, let's talk about it and lift off. So for the intro, I was going to say that I flew an X-Wing this week because there was a sale on Star Wars Squadrons, which is like a, a an arena battle game. But you guys actually found something that was a little more, a little less futuristic, but like kind of in the same direction to talk about uh, for the intro. So I'm just going to shut up about uh, VR and let you guys go off on your uh, your nuclear propulsion craziness here. The announcement of a collaboration between NASA and DARPA um, as far as um, developing a nuclear thermal propulsion uh, rocket engine, which is cool. And I mean, this is something that we've heard about for a while. And like we've kind of known, I think, for several years that this is kind of heading in this direction, you know? I, I mean, I didn't know what form it would take, but specifically it's a NASA DARPA uh, thing, which makes sense. Like, I, I get yeah. the sense, and I, I could be wrong because I, I obviously can't keep track of everything that NASA does, but I feel like NASA was like all in on nuclear propulsion in like the 50s and maybe the 60s. And then they were like, all right, we're not going to do NERVA anymore. It costs too much money. And then that was it <laughs> until until today. Yeah, I wouldn't say until today, but like <laughs> within you know the last like I don't know five ten years maybe. But I mean, back in the fifties, wasn't the idea of Nerva to like actually detonate nuclear bombs of some sort for propulsion? Whereas this is completely different. Or no, yeah, different. that was Daedalus. Yeah, that was yeah. a thing. <laughs> Prometheus, I think it was Prometheus. Um, but they did they did make a conventional explosive version that they flew in the atmosphere, which is pretty crazy. Um, like a little a little uh, model rocket with grenades instead of a rocket engine. Um, yeah. But yeah, this this is this is more like Nerva, which is you know flowing things over nuclear hot things to mm. propel yourself. I think Daedalus and Prometheus both existed as nuclear projects. I want to say, and I believe one of them was the, you know, blowing up bombs behind it style. And the other one was just, hey, once we've mastered uh, uh, nuclear uh, fusion technology, then you could just, you know, basically have uh, uh, that kind of thing, like a, just a nuclear rocket that's just blasting out your propellant, but using uh, uh, fusion instead of, I guess, combustion. They had ideas of using nuclear fusion, or do you mean like... In yeah. the sense of a nuclear bomb is a fusion bomb, like that. That that's what you mean? Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. So yeah. So, so Project Daedalus. Oh, geez. And, and what a what an American centric thing. Apparently, this was the British were looking into this, the British Interplanetary Society. So sorry. Um, in the seventies, they were looking at a fusion rocket, and so not not fission, which is you know the easier one, the one that we do use, but we're talking you know next gen fusion to basically power your rocket, where presumably it would be similar to nuclear thermal propulsion. But I guess instead of just having fission warm up your propellant, you would have fusion warm up your propellant. Wow. That's pretty ambitious considering we can't do fusion here on Earth. Exactly. Right. Very, very, <laughs> very <laughs> ambitious. Yeah. The Rotating Detonation Rocket Engine, or the RDRE. So this is something that the last I heard of it was 
I don't know how many years ago, there was a Scott Manley video on it, which we will hopefully have a link to in the show notes because it's very informative. And uh, I thought it was kind of interesting sounding, but I didn't really think much about it since then. Um, mm-hmm. But apparently there have been some tests and these were tests that were done last year. I don't know exactly when, but they were actually done last year. But the big news is that they have confirmed, I guess, uh, some of their initial findings. So this was a test that was done at the Marshall Space Flight Center. They were doing an engine test and we don't know what the fuel is. Actually, I think they probably tested a number of fuels, first of all. That's my That's, guess. That is, yeah, that is a cool part about these engines is that anything that can combust, you can throw those two propellants together. And yeah, <laughs> so there are a lot of options. The reason why these RDREs sounded familiar, or you remember them recently, is that we did a short and sweet on one in episode three, on episode 322. And so this was in 2021, JAXA demonstrated one on a uh, suborbital rocket, and they actually had their ignition uh, of the RDRE in space, which I believe is the first, and I guess to date only time that one of these was actually turned on uh, in the vacuum of space, which is pretty awesome. And uh, and, and also, I believe in 2021, the uh, Lucas Schuetz Institute of Aviation uh, also did a sounding rocket that went much, much lower, only 450 meters, but they uh, also fired one of these uh, in the air on uh, using a propane and nitrous oxide mix. And then evidently, based on that, yeah, wonderful Scott Manley video, uh, I'm sure we've been putting these on planes and testing them to different uh, degrees for decades now. But what really, really surprised me is this uh, very recent testing, I guess technically more recent than the NASA one, if the NASA one was last year. But from the reporting, I feel like I wasn't seeing this. I just managed to catch a tweet uh, about it. But China, at the beginning of this month, so uh, this is you know January 2023, at the beginning of the month, a few weeks ago, they actually fired one that they, at least in the tweet, had uh, dubbed a continuous DRE, uh, continuous detonation r- rocket engine. And so they were using hydrogen and oxygen as their propellants. But um, I wonder if the continuous, uh, I guess it takes away that kind of the, the rotating part. <laughs> um, and they just uh, basically have detonations that are propelling your, you know, that provide your thrust without necessarily having the, well, I, I don't know, because uh, yeah, that would, that I want to make a this detonation engine. Yeah. So a continuous detonation engine must just be that they can feed their propellants fast enough to keep up with the detonation and keep the detonation like wave front in the same place, which is like, I don't know I if see. that makes sense. No, no, I get, I get what you're saying. Yeah, and that's, that's why I slowed down because I'm like, but it's not pulse. So yeah, so yeah. It, you know, at the and at the end of the day, it could potentially be just a this is this is also a rotating detonation rocket engine, but just different nomenclature being used because yeah, rotating true. ones are continuous, and so I don't want to mm-hmm. cross out that possibility. But either way, good job for everybody involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, may, maybe it would be worth just kind of stepping back, and if someone kind of hadn't caught this news at all and doesn't know what these are. What what does a rotating detonation rocket engine mean in the first place? Well, first off, it doesn't mean it, it does not mean that the engine rotates. <laughs> yes, think, um, that's yeah. an important thing. Mm-hmm. It's a rotating detonation, right? So I guess like you were kind of talking about, there are different ways that you can do this, um, and there's one of them that is rotating, which is to say that it's not pulsed. So it's basically like a continuing detonation 
uh, shock front that kind of like travels around the inside of a cylinder or these two cylinders between which uh, there's this detonation happening, which is where the fuel and, you know, the oxidizer are mixed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's kind of the best way that I can summarize it. Uh, I don't know many more details than that because yeah. it looks really complicated, but. Yeah. With, with, with right. The, the, the key that, you know, we were talking about before that, right. De- detonation means that you're, when you combust these, these two, you basically do it at such, you, you generate such a high pressure that the flame front moves faster than the speed of sound, which creates that shock wave that you're talking about. And so you're able to basically get more energy out of the same uh, propellants uh, using it this way, uh, rather than the traditional kind of combustion uh, engines. And and yeah, and, and it's it's done through an annulus rather than just you know throwing them together because you can't have like just a, a, a continuum of shocks, right? You create your shock and then you create your next shock and your next shock and so on. And so rather than have them in that pulse configuration where you do just shoot out one shock after another after another at the back of your engine. You do it in this annulus and you do it, you have the, the combustion kind of come in at an, at an angle, uh, like, like into the side of it. And so I, I can't, I couldn't think of a, there's a lot of real world uh, situations where this happens. So maybe one of you guys can help me out with this, but the, the best analogy I could come up with is it's almost like, imagine if um, the shock is the red stripe on a barber pole and you, mm. you introduce mm-hmm. it at the base of the barber pole. And then as you know, you know, barber pole rotates and it kind of swings around as it moves, as it propagates up. <laughs> it it, it kind of, that's how the, the shock is able to just always be kind of coming out of the top of the, or I guess the exit part of the mm-hmm. nozzle or the combustion you, chamber. You'd have to have a pretty long nozzle for it to do a barber pole effect though. I think, a I think partial, the, the partial barber pole, I should say, not, not a full twist. Yeah. It's got almost straight lines, <laughs> but, but yeah, but because, yeah. So, so imagine, yeah. So, so I mean, cause, cause that's the idea, right? Is that as that one shot comes out at that oblique angle, then the next one comes in and overlaps with it enough that they sort of, they overlap enough. <laughs> that, that. I don't, I don't think they overlap at all. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I think as you have the, the flame, the, the flame front, what is it called? The, the, the wave front, I guess, as it's going around this, this, this ring, this annulus, um, right. So at the, at one end of the annulus, you have the exit path, the nozzle at the other end, you've got your fuel injectors. And so as it's running around, burning up this fuel and then extinguishing itself because it's eaten up all the fuel, I think the thrust, like the actual shock wave is moving out. I mean, it's moving out slower than the wave front is moving because that's the definition of a detonation. But I don't I don't think it takes that long for it to exit that you wind up getting an overlap. I think you basically just have the center of your thrust wandering around but so fast that like it it wouldn't really matter for, hmm. you know, control terms. Uh so you've got you've got a diagram here. Is this Yeah, that's Is the y-axis like actual space or is Mhm this over time yeah my, my understanding is this is if you take the annulus and you slice it and then unfold it yeah i guess the question is how big is that annulus because from what i've seen they've had there have been tests with or like simulations with one detonation and some with two detonations right where they where they chase around each other right so so, right. so yeah the shocks the shocks don't overlap but like the downstream products sort of overlap and so if you look at what's being exhausted it's all shocked material that's been exhausted and thus this kind of high pressure. Oh, right, right, right. 
yeah. stuff to get zooted out. I would still be surprised if this if they actually overlapped like this, but like that that just seems like it's a long y axis for demonstration purposes but like i don't know as a non-engineer i would i think it'd be good to have them kind of like mixed up because like right you're, you're injecting something whatever happens there so long as at the end of the day you're exhaust if you get uniform uniform in space exhaust <laughs> that's that would be good compared to uh just having a you know your exhaust moving around so quickly that you can treat it as though it's smoothed, you know, like a high enough frequency. Yeah. Well, I think that that, that 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 is how it works, right? I mean, it would almost have to be by definition. You're going to have a higher pressure part of the annulus mm-hmm. where at the very least the exhaust is coming out with much more force. Yeah. But remember, remember the frequency at which this is zooming around right. that and annulus. So yeah, if, even if it is off center, it, do, it doesn't really matter because it's right. Yeah, going around so fast. And then there can be like just a single shock front or like wave front or two or I think even four. I think I saw, I was looking at some university experiment at the University of Central Florida. I think it was. This was some years ago and they did one and it looked like they had four of them within it. And I mean, this this experiment lasted for maybe just a fraction of a second, but, you know, they did it. And then I think two of the wave fronts kind of like collapsed into one, you know, so it, mm-hmm. and then from there they kind of like recentered into like three. So it seems to be that it's, you know, I mean, the big problem is just maintaining that it's just a stability issue yeah it seems like a pretty tough stability solution it kind of reminds me of what you don't want to happen in a large rocket nozzle you know like right like at the injector plate and that's why they have (laughs) it's uh, exactly what we're trying to avoid (laughs) exactly yeah so dennis i I looked at the uh the scott manley video again and there's uh like a computational fluid dynamic simulation. And yeah, I think you're right. I think it does overlap more than it would seem like it should. And it's just because, you know, detonations by definition are moving so fast. Hmm. It, that's that's a really wild part of the concept that I hadn't really considered. Oh yeah, no, I, even in the thumbnail, that like it conveniently looks like it has a CFD picture in the thumbnail. Mm-hmm. And, and, and mm-hmm. you could see right at the shock front, yeah, it's, it's a little more... Um, yellow at the top but at least there is some more harmonization i guess there's some yeah but all the all the green yeah the the green pressure area really that that band is a lot bigger than i than i would have thought it was and you can even see in that Mm -hmm. in that cfd sim the uh that diagonal but steeper area of turbulence which is oh yeah yeah the the vortex shedding yeah it's like that little gap in there yeah that's a cool. I don't know. I don't. Know, I do not know the physics of vortex shedding, but that's pretty cool to be able to see in such disparate things. The physics of vortex shedding is really simple. I don't exactly understand how it applies here, but I mean, like, if you think about an airplane wing, you've got high pressure on the bottom, low pressure on the top, and as air slips around the end of the wing, like the tip of the wing, mm-hmm. uh, it's moving from below the wing to above the wing and then being pulled inward towards the the root of the wing again mm. and so that just it just causes a, a vortex and then because the airplane is moving forward you get this nice spiral behind the wing tip like it's really it, it's not super mysterious or difficult to understand until you apply it to a rocket engine like this and you say, oh, wait, <laughs> that's hang on yeah that's exactly what i was going to say because I, I was literally just Two days ago, reading about that in a, in the t- context of helicopters, and that's why longer blades are preferable because there's you know that vortex uh, 
shedding mm-hmm. is happening only at the wingtips, mm-hmm. and you're getting yeah. just regular old lift. So the longer your blade, the more your rotor is just contributing lift and not any of this funky, funky stuff. Yeah, and and this this seems like it's it's a double vortex, right? Like vortices coming off in one direction from the injection plate side and then other ones coming in from the exhaust side it must just be you know like the the swirls that you get in uh gas giants when there are bands of of clouds moving at different speeds Hmm. like maybe vortex shedding is a bit sophisticated of a concept and it's more just that it's a turbulent zone Hmm. but it's very complicated things happening at a very high speed which is a little terrifying yeah and then and then i guess the other kind of uh uh, context about these engines relative to traditional uh chemical propulsion engines is that um you can make them significantly smaller by design but you're still going to get the same amount of heat load generated and so you have to try out different the the same conventional types of cooling like film cooling uh, ought to work on these and as far as i can tell um, they, there's limited testing on cooling properties because these have been all small scale ones. Uh, those ones that flew on sounding rockets, uh, the China one looks, uh, uh, you know, I don't know how the China one compares, uh, to the NASA one, but the, uh, the NASA one, that was kind of also a big feature of it. It was, it was the largest scale, even though, you know, it's not big enough to fly on a rocket. It, it, it generated a lot more thrust. Uh, than a lot of these other small-scale ones that have been tested so far. Yeah, yeah, I think this was the largest one to date. Mm. So I guess, I don't know if we talked about it, but what is the benefit of doing this, right? Um, Or did we talk about that? I'm not sure if we mentioned it, so why would you want to do this? Um, I think I did just say that they are significantly, apparently significantly more efficient. Um, So what does that mean? I guess depending on your source, it could be as much as 25% more efficient, which I translate that as just meaning 25% increase in specific impulse. Um, I don't Mm. know if there's any other metric that would count there. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that, at least interpret- yeah. interpreting efficiency. <laughs> According to a PDF that you dropped in the notes, um, it might be as little as like 3% to as high as 14%. So maybe not 25%. So I don't know, we're getting some mixed numbers, but that's I think that's kind of to be expected because this is a fairly, this is an evolving technology. And that difference in percentage might depend just on what kind of fuels you're using, but this can be used, you know, for pretty much any fuel really, but which ones like benefit more than the others. Um, I did read that apparently methane might be one of the better ones, and that's just because of its slow kinetic response. So basically, um, there's this thing that they call deflagration, and that's how a traditional rocket engine works. And that's something that you don't want because you actually want you want the detonation. That's what actually produces more energy per like unit fuel. Yeah, yeah. Def- def- deflagration. Sorry, just to wrap it entirely back is is would be your flame front propagating at subsonic speeds. So there's no shock wave formed. Right, and that's something that if you look at. I mean, again, I mean, there's this is kind of like we kind we kind of need some visuals. But if you look at the little animation that that you can see in Scott Manley's video, you'll see that there is a little bit of that happening ahead of the wavefront. It looks like you want to minimize that, and I guess that methane just propagates a little bit slower, perhaps, and so the so it doesn't trickle out ahead of <laughs> the wave. I suppose I'm not entirely sure. Well, slower and maybe slower in the sense that a, you know you can exceed the sound speed of something slower more easily or at least at a lower velocity right and so if it's a slower mm-hmm. if, if if the if the gas has a slower speed of sound then you can exceed okay that makes sense actually mm-hmm. yeah yeah so nasa has now tested a its first full-scale version of this the engine was fired over a dozen times in for a total running time of 10 minutes so that's pretty cool um i think that also i believe is a 
new record because uh, past demonstrations or tests have been just for you know a couple of seconds here, a couple of seconds there, but this is ten minutes. So it seems that they've worked out a lot of the stability stuff um, that that you know they can actually feed that wavefront and keep it going. And um, it maintained about four thousand pounds of thrust for nearly a minute, um, and that's with a chamber pressure of six hundred and twenty-two psi. So Dennis, you have a list of different ISPs depending on the fuel and the oxidizer, it looks like. Yeah. And and I just put these in there for our reference rather than rattle through all of them. But if, uh, you know, this is this is from some theoretical work by, um, uh, this is a paper that I forget where I got this paper from uh, originally. I, I think maybe uh, the Orbital Index, which is a great, you know, kind of news digest mm-hmm. to get some email to you once a week, which is a lot of fun so i recommend it if anybody wants to check it out but um, oh yeah you know you know we send out the show notes by email every week and at the bottom of every single email is a link to the orbital index saying hey (laughs) you want more more news in your email here's the place to get it yeah so this this heister at all paper uh was from last year and uh, in any event they you know had done this kind of study kind of trying to characterize among other things the isps of different propellant combinations for a type of uh rdre and uh the long story short (laughs) is that um uh, hydrogen peroxide and uh, rp2 has the lowest isp at 347 seconds whereas the winner is gaseous oxygen uh and gaseous hydrogen at 554 seconds, just eking out Hydrolox at 538. I guess that's pretty well in line with what you'd expect with ISPs, Mm -hmm. just if this were a conventional rocket engine, right? So, I mean, that part kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Even though we can do higher than, so so throw more numbers, right? Gaseous oxygen RP2 is with a HDH, sorry, an RDRE is 386 seconds. And it's like, yeah, we can do higher than that. But now gaseous oxygen and RP2. And so I guess that's, it's all about relative mm. values. Right. That's what I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's all like relative. So yeah. Uh, the gaseous oxygen and hydrogen at 554 seconds. Normally it's like what? Like what's the top you get? It's like 465, something like that's that. That's what I would have ballparked. I would have guessed 450-ish. Somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is, I mean, this is a big improvement. Mm. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that, I mean, we'll have to wait and see, you know, I guess for further developments, but that really is, I don't know if I'd call it a game changer, but it's its a significant bump up, you know? Mm. Like, and I don't see the trade-off. Like we're not talking about, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily have to be lower thrust. I don't see why you can't build a very large engine, which they are going to do. So you can make big, powerful engines that just have higher ISP too. Mm. That's kind of amazing when you think about it. Like I thought we had already reached- The limits of chemical. <laughs> or somewhere, yeah. Yeah, mm. like you just can't get any more energy out of this, but apparently that's not the case. The the solution to getting more energy out of it is exploded harder. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. That's crazy. And um, then also they did successfully test deep throttling and uh, internal ignition. Now, I don't know what the deep throttling, I don't know how deep that throttling goes. I would like to know that. What I would like to know is how the frequency of that uh, detonation rotation Hmm. changes with the throttle. I, I would expect that if you pull back on the throttle so that you're feeding less reactant mass into the engine, I think that's probably counterintuitive and the, the explosion goes faster because there's less less things to push through maybe. But like, how cool would it be if like, if that changes, the pitch of the rocket growl might change as well. <laughs> Mike in the chat mm. says combustion multiplicans. <laughs> and yeah, so imagine if you're watching a rocket like launch and you can hear it throttling up and down by the pitch change of the of the roar 
Wouldn't that be weird? That would be interesting. I would guess that the speed stays the same, but the amplitude goes yeah. down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that might also be the case, which unfortunately is exactly what happens with any other rocket. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Just gets louder and quieter. Mm-hmm. And one last thing to mention is that this particular engine, at least, was most likely just made possible through the development of a new alloy, which is called GR Cup 42, which is a type of copper alloy. This is a 3D printed engine. And so, um, and Ben, you're the expert on this, but apparently this alloy is kind of diffused in sort of like a powder form, and then it's sintered together with a laser, if that's the right term. Mm -hmm. Does that sound like how you would make something with this alloy? Yep, that's laser sintering. 3D printing, yep. And I think I mentioned earlier that there are plans to develop a larger version of this, and the next one is going to be a 10,000-pound thrust engine, so um, a reusable engine, it says. So I actually kind of missed that part, or I didn't pay attention to it. So what does that mean? I mean, Mm. reusable, so – because really, a reusable engine, I I guess that means that there's no – heavy oxidation of any parts or anything like that, right? Because we're talking about just a reusable engine. We're not talking about any kind of a vehicle that this would go on that would make it such because you you know need to have a reusable rocket in general. Mm-hmm. But I guess first step is to make the engine reusable. I, I don't know how non-reusable this one is. Exactly, um, yeah. How much do we have to read into that line from NASA's press release yeah. about, you know, next plan is to develop a fully reusable 10,000-pound engine. It's like, well, I know this one wasn't 10,000 pounds, but was this one reusable? I don't know. I mean, it's, they were able to start it at least, you know, a dozen times, but. Well, and keep in mind that reusable in this context also means being able to fly it and then recover it and refurbish it and refly it. Not necessarily, mm-hmm. that it's not necessarily the same thing as restartable, right? Like, doesn't mean that mm-hmm. the thing's going to melt after you run it for seven minutes. Just means it's maybe not refurbishable. It could it could be either way. Totally could be either way. But I'm just trying to give give us a a less dour interpretation. And 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 a thank you to Emery in the chat for pointing out a a document on uh, NTRS NASA Technical Report Server. Uh, this is a great place to go to look up uh, 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 things. Uh, in this case, beyond the press release, and uh, it, it's it's just one page, but it does give some information that uh, we didn't catch from the press release, including uh, the number of detonations. Uh, you know, as as they're swirling around in the annulus, uh, was varying between the different firings because they did 17 different starts, including that one full throttle test that hit the 4,000 pounds. And um, uh, most of them, most of the time, they had four to five co-rotating detonations, uh, while one test showed uh, as few as two to three waves uh, swirling around there. And so really interesting. And um, I don't know, just <laughs> very cool to see that uh, uh, at this is really at the bleeding edge where he can't where they yeah. can't even uh, estimate or, or or control necessarily how many waves they're going to have uh, spinning around their chamber. Yeah, very cool. All right, so let's do three short and sweets this week. Ben, what is he first? Starship WDR. While details are sparse, SpaceX conducted a wet dress rehearsal of the Starship 24 slash Booster 7 stack this week. The WDR appears to have been successful. Next up is a 33-engine static fire of Booster 7, which would happen de-stacked. Then SpaceX will need to wait for their launch license. Booster 7 is planned to splash down in the Gulf, while Starship 24 will perform a half-orbit before splashing down off of Hawaii. And then next up, Lucy Mission gets new target. NASA's Lucy Mission, already designed to visit a plethora of main belt asteroids and Jupiter Trojans, has added a new target to its list. A 
Originally, the spacecraft's first target would be 52246 Donald Johansson in April 2025, a C-type asteroid named after the discoverer of the Lucy Hamanen fossil. However, after Raphael Marshall of France's Nice Observatory compared Lucy's trajectory to that of half-million asteroids, a new target, 1999DD57, or Dinkinish, will be visited at a distance of 64,000 kilometers on November 1st, 17 months earlier than its previously scheduled first flyby. And finally, JunoCam suffers significant anomaly during flyby. During Juno's earlier flyby of the planet Jupiter in December, Perigeo 47, an anomalous temperature rise in its camera resulted in the first four of 90 images degraded in quality, with two unusable and two suffering from high noise. Unfortunately, this issue re-emerged during last week's flyby, Perigeo 48, lasting far longer than previously, at 23 hours compared to 36 minutes. Once the anomaly was cleared, the remaining 44 images were usable. The mission team is currently evaluating JunoCam engineering data to investigate the cause of the problem. Certainly hope they fix that because those pictures are friggin' phenomenal. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions come to Incorrection Burns, and we have some more information about last week's discussion about how first and second stages communicate with the ground, right? So the ABL launch, um, we were trying to figure out how that works. And so anyway, we, we got Chris Hoffman via Discord about this. Yeah. So Chris phrased this as a, an information burn, not a correction burn. Um, but he was saying that, yeah, you can receive data from both stages at once if both stages want to talk to the ground. Um, I said that I kind of expected that there might be some interference issues. And he said, oftentimes, they will actually communicate on two different radio frequencies, um, to avoid um, those signal collisions. And he said, but that totally depends on who's flying the vehicle um, and that he's seen vehicles with, with with a radio transmitter only on the upper stage and both stages actually use the same transmitter. And then he said that ABL's ground system is GS0. I have no idea what the GS0 system looks like. I thought I threw this in and maybe one of you guys would have heard so it. So it's not yeah. ground support operations. That's not an O. That's a GS0. Oh. Huh. Yeah. Ablespacesystems.com slash GS0 <laughs> mm. describes their uh, their ground support system. So, okay. Well, that that's why they treated it like it was a proper noun because it was. <laughs> so moving right along to this week in spaceflight history, uh, we have a bunch of... Correct guesses, some more than others, if that's how we're putting it. <laughs> we yeah. have Chris A.K.A. Steigerfield, Hydrak, Deathkin, Uncle Willie. And then we have bonus points for the Greek and Psykyle. So they're the ones who got the essence of the clue, um, which was, I reread the specs. Let's give it another shot. So I didn't know what this was in reference to when I first heard it, but uh, I can see what the answer is now. Uh, mm. And I guess take it away, Ben. Okay, so this week in spaceflight history is the 31st of January, 1971. It was the launch of Apollo 14. I gave extra credit to the people who cited the launch because it was the correct date. Um, a bunch of other people had other dates that were related. Actually, no, that's not true. Um, a couple of people had... Um, other events in the mission, uh, but not the launch. And the people who I gave extra credit to were the people who cited Apollo 13. So uh, before we talk more about Apollo 13, 
which like all roads lead to Apollo 13 in Rome, right? Uh, Apollo 14, uh, the crew was Alan Shepard, Stuart Rusa, and Edgar Mitchell. Uh, the vehicles were CSM-110 Kitty Hawk and LM-8 Antares. Um, Apollo 14 was the final H mission, right? They broke missions up into these different letter uh, designations. The H missions were the, the first couple landing missions, including Apollo 12. Well, actually, no, Apollo 12 was was a G designation. As they kind of set it aside as the first landing. And then the H missions that followed were like exploration focused. And then the J type missions were the science focused missions. Yes, they skipped the I's. They got lumped into uh, the J's. Okay. Mike says Apollo 11 was G and he's pretty sure that Apollo 12 was H. Yes, I think you're correct. So Apollo 14 is kind of famous uh, for being the mission with golf played on the moon, right? Shepard brought two golf balls with him and made a club uh, out of what, like a sample, uh, a geologic sample uh, arm and uh, whacked the balls and they went very far. Now, to get back to the things that are interesting to Ben, Apollo 14 fixed a lot of issues encountered on Apollo 13. Actually, also issues that were encountered on previous missions. But like, I love Apollo 13. And I, I think talking about what changed uh, is a really interesting uh, view into kind of the evolution of early American spaceflight. So uh, as a reminder, Apollo 13 uh, blowed up. Specifically, an O2 tank exploded. And it, it, it didn't detonate. <laughs> it conflagrated and, and popped rivets, right? But like, it's fair enough to say they lost an O2 tank for an explosion. Now, the explosion was caused by a short in wires that ran through the oxygen tank. That short heated up the wires, and the heat of the wires ignited the insulation uh, that was failing to insulate those wires properly. The insulation that had melted was caused by pre-launch heating of the O2 tank. They did not notice the heating of the O2 tank because they had bad instrumentation limits. The dials only went up to 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and uh, the temperatures actually got up to possibly 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So the heating was caused by a different configuration when they're doing ground testing they ran at a higher voltage than they would during flight and unfortunately the thermostats that were supposed to control these heaters weren't rated for the higher voltage and literally melted so that's a big overview i'm going to dig into some of this but like there's this whole causality chain right to melt this thermostat right let me give you an idea of how big the voltage difference is in flight uh, the CSM runs on 28 volts, or at least this section of the service module runs on 28 volts. All of the block two CSMs got 65 volts on the pad. I'm not 100% sure why they did this. Mike is in the chat. Maybe he'll uh, have a, a quick answer for us. But, you know, 65 volts as opposed to 28 volts kind of requires. Oh, yeah. Mike says, nope, done, no. Um, you can imagine that. This is going to require uh, hardware uh, changes that are relatively significant. And so in this case, the thermostat was changed between block one and block two. Um, when they were building block two, um, NASA ordered this block two tank that included this upgraded thermostat. 
Beach Aircraft Company uh, are the ones who who made the part, and they just never made the change. And Apollo, the the like the Apollo program never noticed and never followed up. Um, so Apollo twelve, actually, I think as far back as Apollo eight. Um, all of the block two uh, CSMs flew with a bad thermostat um, and Apollo 13 could have happened at any time, uh, but it didn't. It happened on Apollo 13 because there was a procedure change. So during pre-flight testing, uh, they would tank the, uh, the service modules, uh, oxygen tank, and then detank it. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to be able to edit <laughs> to get rid of the, your dog's cop. Yeah, no, he's just... <laughs> He's going at it. So, so the reason this issue didn't happen until Apollo 13 is because uh, during pre-flight testing, they would tank and then detank this oxygen tank in the service module. And Apollo 13 uh, had a misaligned uh, fill line. Uh, we think it's because the tank was dropped uh, during integration. I don't think anybody's a hundred percent sure, but basically when they drained the other, the other service modules, they would just blast in a bunch of nitrogen and that'd be that with Apollo 13, they emptied it. And then a little bit of oxygen kept trickling back into the tank. And so what they decided to do was to just turn on the heaters and boil off the oxygen so that, you know, they could not only purge the tank, but I guess purge the, the fill lines as well. Maybe. Well, when <laughs> when they set everything up, they wound up turning on these heaters, which powered the thermostat, which melted the thermostat, which then allowed the tank to go way beyond its thermal limits and melt the insulation off of the wires and the stage is set, right? I just, I love this chain of events. Like this is such a long a uh, dramatic series of things going wrong one after the other. And it's not one of those, uh, not one of those things where it's like, this almost didn't happen, right? This was going to happen at some point. Mm. Um, the only two things that needed to happen at the same time were the thermostat not being fixed and some reason why they would turn on the thermostat on the ground like that. That's basically it. Okay. So the changes that were made to Apollo 14, they did a, basically a complete redesign of the O2 tanks. They actually pulled out the destratification fans. Those fans are what caused the Apollo 13 fire, right? They turned the fans on and then turned them off. And by that point, they had already heated up the wires and started a fire, then built to the point where it was able to pop open the tank. So they, they totally pulled the fans out. I'm I'm not 100% sure why they pulled them out. I think basically they decided the fewer wires we can have inside this tank, the better. And the fans were basically there to let them measure uh, how much O2 they had left to kind of stir them up to get a better pressure reading. And uh, I, I think they basically said, we don't really need this. They, I mean, they also changed one of the sensors. I, I think they... they uh, they might have installed better sensors. I'm not 100% sure. And that might have just totally obviated the, the requirement for these fans. Uh, but then they also upgraded the heater. The first heater just ran straight through the center of the tank, right? The tank is a sphere and it runs right through the middle. And it's got this steel tube and there are elements wrapped around the tube. I mean, it's seriously, it's a toaster, right? Um, and so the original version had two parallel elements, so two 
elements wired in parallel. And they upgraded it to three parallel elements with separate control of one element. And I'm not sure if that's one of the three, but I, I bet it's a fourth element because it's hard to separately control an element that's in parallel with others. Then they upgraded the thermostats. And I say upgraded with heavy quotes around it because this wasn't an upgrade. This was just matching the specifications that were already out there. They also changed the insulation on the wires that ran through the tank. Um, instead of using Teflon, they used magnesium oxide, and then they also sheathed them in stainless steel. Um, the fuel cell O2 supply valves uh, were redesigned to make sure that the Teflon insulation in the valves never came in contact with any of the oxygen that flowed through them. They also upgraded the monitoring systems, both on board the vehicle and back in mission control. And this is like a total human, like a user interface kind of change. But they basically made it easier to see when there was an anomaly. Some of the upgrades, I think, made anomalies identified quicker, but it also gave really clear visual indications something is different than we expect. Something that's a little more human and feels a little more cringy, not, not cringy, like clenchy, fear clenchy, is they put a potable water supply inside the command module. Um, they also threw an extra battery. It's actually the same battery that's in the LEM. They put it inside the service module. And then they also made modifications to make it easier to transfer power between the lunar module and the service module. Those three things really kind of make my chest feel tight, um, mm -hmm. especially adding... Uh, additional potable water supplies inside the vehicle. Just, oh boy, we came close to losing three people. With all these changes, uh, I, these changes were all successful. We did not have uh, Apollo 13.5, um, but there there were still issues on Apollo 14. There were issues extracting the lunar module from the S4B. There were issues with the ground sensing radar. I, I want to talk about one particular issue that just feels really fun to me. Basically, after they uh, separated the command module and the lander wall in orbit, preparing for the landing, um, the AGC aboard Antares started getting uh, an abort signal from a, one of the switches. If the computer had been in the descent sequence and it saw that abort signal, it would have aborted. We talked about this last week, I think, or the week before. Yeah, recently, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, they would be dumping the ascent module and they would be going back up to orbit. And that's really not a risk you can accept. And so they performed percussive troubleshooting. In other words, they tapped on the side of the switch and that did clear the abort signal, uh, but it didn't clear it for very long. It reengaged. And so uh, the ground decided this is probably a solder ball that had separated inside the switch and then was shorting out the contacts. Um, really not great. I don't, I don't know how with all of NASA's soldering uh, specifications, they were able to have a, a soldered joint that could have let loose a, a ball of solder. But, you know, I guess things happen. Now, Wikipedia talks about a possible solution and how it wasn't an option here, um, which is updating the software to ignore the switch. And Wikipedia says that the software was hardwired and not able to be updated from the ground, which I think is just really funny. It's kind of an indication of the world that we live in today, where it's notable that, you know, 
<laughs> the software is uh, literally knit together in yeah. wires and ferrite <laughs> beads. So yeah, you're not going to be able to update the core memory or, or the, you know, the program memory, the program itself, not the memory. <laughs> so yeah, you're, you're not going to be able to do that as a solution. Uh, but what they ended up doing, I almost would have expected them to just pull the switch out of the board, but I guess there's a reason why they couldn't do that. Instead, what they did was they um, entered updates into the computer to tell the computer, you've already done an abort. You can ignore this abort switch right? That's already been taken care of. Just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they made that change um, just, you know, minutes before they had to do their descent burn or their deorbit burn. And yeah, as we all know, Apollo 14 successfully made it uh, down to the lunar surface, back up to lunar orbit and all the way back home. Uh, so there you go. That's this week in spaceflight history. Man, I didn't know anything about this. <laughs> Isn't this cool? I love Apollo, man. We could We could do each Apollo mission like four or five times as a twist and still not exhaust mm. all the interesting things we could talk about. Well, thank you, Ben, for that wonderful twist on all the different ways that Apollo era spacecraft could malfunction and encounter issues. Yeah. Um, that was a particularly deep dive into the oxygen tanks. Like I felt like even just kind of reading a little extra, you went beyond the extra. So that's, yeah, that is fun. Mm -hmm. uh, so David, next week is the 7th to the 13th of February. Do you have a clue for us? Uh, yes, I do. So next week, the clue is for 2015 and it is Penguin Paratrooper. So uh, make sure that when you're trying to figure out what this event is, that you are envisioning a literal penguin paratrooping mm -hmm. in somewhere and it is hopefully very cute and adorable. Or menacing like the ones from uh, Batman uh, Returns. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, they were menacingly adorable too, I, you gotta say. But uh, yeah, so if you think you know what that clue, what event that clue is referencing, please send us an email or tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right, so it looks like we just have three space flight events this week. So let's do those. Uh, Dennis, you have the first launch. And then there's one other. Mm. Yeah, so we got our first of two launches. But this one, you all know the drill. It's a Falcon 9 Block 5, and it'll be taking a Starlink Group 5-3 to orbit. And so this is another batch. This one's out of the Cape. And like we kind of talked about last week or a week, two weeks ago or whenever, this one has a window which I'm guessing is due to the uncertainty of when it's going to launch as opposed to it actually being able to hit a window to be able to put mm -hmm. these starlinks in that shell but in any event uh keep an eye out for this on february 1st wednesday with this quote-unquote window from 0802 utc to 1232 utc and uh this one will be launching specifically out of uh launch complex 39a at the cape right after that we have a spacewalk uh i really i wish we would have uh had time to cover this uh because they're following up on another spacewalk where they weren't able to finish all their tasks and like Time time was every time something interesting happened on a spacewalk, I, I spent an hour talking about it on the show. <laughs> and I want to get back to that because like I love spacewalks. Okay, so this is going to be US Spacewalk 85. Um, it's going to be Nicole Mann and Koichi Wakata uh, finishing finishing up the tasks from their previous spacewalk. Basically, they uh, 
didn't finish uh, installing the IROSA on the uh, 1A power channel. Um, and so they're going to go out and do that on Thursday, February 2nd. Coverage begins at 6.45 a.m. Eastern time on NASA TV. And the spacewalk is scheduled to begin at around 8.15 a.m. Eastern time. And this one should take up to seven hours. And then after that, on the 5th, uh, we have the launch of Electro L number four, which is a meteorological satellite for the Russian Federal Space Agency. And it's uh, launching on a Proton M with a block DM03 stage, which I believe is the is like an optional fourth stage for the Proton M launch vehicle. And so that's launching from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan from an unknown pad. But the uh, scheduled liftoff time is 0912 UTC. All right, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, so let's go ahead and deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jakey's and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mike, Colin, The Greek, Emery, Chris, a.k.a. Stig Garfield, for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you all on Orbit next week. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.